And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's Wednesday, wonderful Wednesday. You know what that means. Smoke, mirrors, and the truth with Bruce Anderson. You know, I love the Wednesday music. I, I, I so love the Wednesday music. I'm thinking of, let's make the Wednesday music the everyday music. I haven't, I haven't made a final decision on that, but I like it. There's, got, there's something about it, really. It's good. Anyway, welcome back, my friend. It's so good to be back. I've been saving up all of the truths, and I've been looking forward to the music, and um, can't wait to have our conversation. Well, we're going to start. We're going to start with an admission on my part, and this. As you well I like know. this sound of that. Yeah, as you well know, this doesn't happen often. But um, it's going to happen today, right out of the gate. Get it over with so we don't have to dwell on it anymore. Bojo, he is in fact gone. It's official now, absolutely official after yesterday, Liz Truss meeting the Queen at Balmoral in Scotland. Mm-hmm. And today, you didn't see it coming. You just didn't see <laughs> I it coming. Didn't. I really thought he was going to do something. To hang on now he may still come back i mean churchill came back others have come back he says Are he's going to double down back. on him i mean no, you just no, had no. a big loss you're just <laughs> declaring your loss that yeah. you're going to bet I'm, on him again i'm declaring my loss i'm declaring that you called it right and you called it right a long time ago you said he wasn't going to he wasn't going to be able to survive and and he didn't hmm. now today i don't know about you but I was up early this morning. I was watching the BBC. I was watching the first Prime Minister's question period, which we talked about before, which are great. I mean, it's the real deal. The Prime Minister stands there and is grilled for an hour, sometimes more than that, by anybody who wants to grill her in the British House of Commons. And so this was day one, first day as Prime Minister. And it was, you know, relatively rock'em sock'em, but she was ready. The BBC described her as brimming with overconfidence. And she did seem to be very confident. Now, mind you, you could kind of predict what it was going to be. They're heading towards, the estimates say, maybe 20% inflation in the UK next year. So there were all the questions were about the economy. What are you going to do? How are you going to help people through the winter? What are you doing about energy prices, etc., etc., etc.? But she bought herself another 24 hours saying, tomorrow is the day I will show you the plan that people are going to be able to survive this winter because we're taking their concerns into account and we're going to do something about energy costs and inflation. So we'll see. But as an out-of-the-gate thing, because she's had mixed reviews, as you know. I don't know about mixed I've seen a lot of bad reviews. I you know, haven't seen a I was, lot of good I was trying to be kind, but there have been a lot a lot of bad reviews. That she, a lot. Yeah. But she's there. She has the confidence of her party in terms of the people in her party, yeah. not necessarily the caucus, the the members of the British House of Commons. Um which is well, this seems like a story that keeps playing itself out in parties that, uh, and, and maybe more particularly parties of the right. I don't know that that's, uh, I want to think about that a little bit more. But when the base of parties pick leaders 
it seems that maybe the polarization that's been going on in recent years causes parties to pick people who who don't have broader appeal and and don't really know how to go out and get it and often don't want to go out and get it. And Liz Trust to me does look pretty squarely in that category. But um, anyway, I interrupted you, Peter. Uh, carry on. Well, no, I, I was just going to say it, it's interesting to watch that process. It's in the British process. It's interesting to to know that she's the third woman in the last 30, 35 years to be prime minister of the UK. Now, she wasn't elected by the people at large yet. There'll be a general election at some point. And if she wins that, then you can legitimately say she's, you know, being elected as prime minister of, of the United Kingdom. But she is PM now. Um, um, Theresa May was prime minister not that long ago, just before Boris Johnson. She was in the House of Commons today. She asked a question. It was all very nice. And, of course, then Margaret Thatcher. And I find it fascinating in a way. And, I don't know, depressing in a way that the United Kingdom, a country of you know staunch conservative values and remembering the you know the the old ways of doing things, has broken through. There's been as many female prime ministers in the last 35 years as there have been male prime ministers in Britain. In Canada, we're still waiting for our first elected one. Kim Campbell, of course, was prime minister in the 1993 for a few months, uh, elected by her party, rejected by the people overwhelmingly. I can't blame her totally for that, but it was, you know, they they had two seats when it was all over that 93 election. But there's something about in Canada and clearly in the States too, when you're looking at the top job, there's an issue about women in that position. Now, well, I think that, yeah, I, I, I look. I mean, I think that men have had um, what I joked about as a pretty good run. I mean, basically, men have kind of dominated positions of leadership in politics forever. Um, so, the question is, is that changing? And obviously, is it changing quickly enough? And is it changing in a consistent? pattern. I think it's changing. I don't think it's changing enough. I think it is directionally going in in, um, a fairly consistent fashion. And I think when I look at the the choice that Prime Minister Trudeau made to make his cabinet gender balanced, I think uh, that that was the kind of decision that helps propel that forward, that that equality, um, helps uh, send a signal to women who are thinking about entering politics that they should consider entering politics. I think the fact that there has not really been any public pushback to that idea. Remember when it first happened, Peter, there was some criticism in some corners in the punditocracy, but the public never really flinched at the idea. Now, it's surprising to me still that um, in our last, the last time we polled about this, only one in four Canadians knew that the cabinet, the federal cabinet was gender balanced. It was just a reminder for me of the fact that people in politics make decisions and tell people about them, but a lot of people don't pay that much attention and don't know some of those basic uh, realities. Uh, And the last thing I would say is I do find it encouraging um, 
but I don't want to overstate it, especially being a, a man, uh, a white man of a certain age. I don't want to overstate any of this. But the fact that our finance minister and deputy prime minister and defense minister and foreign affairs minister are, are women, um, and as near as I can tell, nobody considers that to be a, a matter of surprise or concern or anything other than these are the talented people that that deserve these jobs or were chosen for these jobs because they're qualified and, and skilled. I think that's a good sign too. You realize, of course, that um, if Pierre Polyev becomes leader of the Conservative Party, it'll be interesting to see when he does his shadow cabinet, whether there's what the balance is between men and women in that. But that's not the point I'm going to make. If he becomes leader of the Conservative Party and eventually becomes Prime Minister of Canada, you will not be able to use words like whatever that was, punditocracy? Gatekeepers. You have to simplify, you will have to simplify your language. Um, That was a promise made last week. One of his final promises in the campaign for the leadership is we're going to make language simpler. You pass a law. Pass a law. We're going to be gatekeepers of the language. At least for the hundreds of thousands of people who work for the federal government, that's his plan. It seems kind of silly to me. Um, But in keeping with the idea of kind of waving colorful objects at people who, you know, might find them interesting and attractive and they become water cooler talk if there was still water coolers um, as opposed <laughs> yeah. to people carrying their own Ooh, don't touch that water. water. You can't go to that water. Other people have drank from that water. Um, in defense of the simpler language legislation, uh, it's not the first, Canada's not the first. I mean, there are a number of other countries and countries we respect. Uh, they do it down under. Elsewhere, there's language. You know, well, we already do have language. guidelines. We do have guidelines for this. And so you broke you know, the, I saw this you broke the guidelines. And, you broke the guidelines by the use of that word. That, oh, no. I, I mean, I think part of the part of the conversation <laughs> that I've been interested to watch is is people saying, well, sometimes you need to describe a complex piece of public policy. And the nature of the complexity means you can't use simple, simple, simple words. You have to use words that have a precise meaning uh, so that people can't be confused. And when you're writing a law, you definitely have to use precise language because sometimes the law is going to be challenged and you need to be sure that those in the judicial system who are considering the challenges to a law know exactly what it is that you intended with the law, which means choosing your words carefully. So choosing words carefully can mean choosing complex terms. I've, you know, honestly, it was kind of a fitting end to a sloganeering campaign. We'll see how it ends, but it wasn't a it wasn't a master stroke of public policy. Let me just leave it at that. I'm trying to be kind and gentle as we, as conservatives, decide who their who their next leader is going to be, which they will do this Saturday. So obviously, we'll talk about that uh, at length. I'm sure on Friday when uh, Chantel joins us for good talk. Now, speaking of choosing your words carefully, you did just that. Uh, for a piece that I think, I believe, comes out today in The Observer. 
It's out this morning. Yeah. National Observer. The National Observer, which is based in Vancouver, right? I mean, it's available everywhere, but are they not based in Vancouver? It's a digital. uh, I mean, they they have journalists, I suppose, in different places. But yes, it started there. Yeah. Okay. Um, You've written a really interesting piece. I direct people to go to it to read it. It's about the overall state of, uh, of things in the country and your interpretation and analysis of some of the polling data that's been out there. But you include in there a couple of sentences that I find really interesting because it's kind of an accepted thing about politics in Canada and elsewhere that whoever the government is, forget about which party it is, but just kind of whoever is the government of the day, that once they get to the two or three term mark, usually in the kind of eight to 10 year period, that people go, I've had enough of that gang. Time to get them out. And we've never really kind of defined that. Why do we feel that way? And that's what I find interesting in your piece. And I want you to expand on it if you could. Let me let me just read the, the the couple of sentences here that I that I found so fascinating. This is Bruce in the Observer today. Any government that grows longer in the tooth starts to sound self-absorbed, self-important, and disconnected. Ministers' lives can look like a series of pleasant meetings with important people, cutting checks, smiling, and traveling. Incumbency starts to look like entitlement, unless there is very deliberate effort to counter that drift. Talk to me about that. Well, you know, that I'm glad you pointed that to that particular paragraph, Peter, because it was probably the paragraph that felt awkward to write, but necessary to put down because the data really say, and, and let me step back here. First of all, what I tried to focus on is that, you know, liberals and conservatives are tied nationally um, an election today would, if those numbers played out, would probably produce about exactly the same result as we have, maybe a little bit better for the conservatives, but not a, a win for the conservatives. But the big question for the liberals as they meet in retreats, the cabinet this week and caucus next week, I believe, is are there voters out there who would consider voting for us, but aren't willing to do that today? And the truth is there's 7 million of them and 7 million is a huge number in terms of our system. Um, more than enough to, uh, uh, to give the liberals a chance at a majority. If they can, if they can find what it is that these voters are looking for that they don't see right now. So I wrote some questions that really posited criticisms of the government of the liberals and asked people, whether they agreed with them. And then I focused on the 25%, the 7 million who would consider voting liberal, but aren't doing it now. And I looked at which ones they agreed with the most. And what I found there is, it's kind of a mixture of things. Uh, certainly there's a, at the top of the list is probably wanting the government to have more of an economic focus. Um, alongside that kind of wanting to feel that the prime minister is attentive to the economy in the same way that he's been attentive to other issues uh, over the first several years of his time in office. Um, But not very far below that is this sense of the government talking down to people, of being kind of elitist, of being out of touch, of being disconnected. And I think that these are often errors of 
omission rather than commission in the sense that the way that governments talk about themselves and the way that ministers, for example, use social media to describe their daily work can feel to people like it isn't as grinding or as uh, disconcerting some days as regular people's lives. And in the best of times, maybe that doesn't really matter. Maybe it doesn't create much distance between people and uh, those who are um, who are leading government. But we haven't really seen the best of times, and we're not likely to see the best of times uh, going forward. And so politicians who are incumbents, regardless of what government and, and what uh, political strike, they need to be cognizant of the fact that there's that, that gap that will always exist, but can be exacerbated if they do some things from a communication standpoint that allow people to say, well, they're not living the life that I live. They're not talking about things the way that I talk about. So we were just joking a little bit about plain language thing, but plain language is one of those things. I mean, I think the real reason why Pierre Polyev talks about plain language is that he knows that uh, this government um, and maybe governments generally find it quite difficult to use terms that people can relate to, that the structure of communications starts to become encumbered with all of these protocols and all of these concepts that are popular in the in the punditocracy. Uh, and, and politicians need to be really careful uh, about that because if you're incumbents and you're using these terms that maybe a lot of people don't relate to, but your opponents are using terms that people really do relate to, you're going to find yourself a bleeding support. So uh, I think language is one of those things. I think there are little idiosyncratic things. Like um, the Trudeau government often talks about our government as though it is the government of the Liberal Party as opposed to your government or the government of the people of Canada. It seems like a little thing, but do it day in, day out, across all cabinet, across all caucus, and it contributes a sense of distance. Like, it is your government politician, not my government, and so why am I supposed to feel some ownership of the choices that you make? So those stylistic issues are important in allowing distance to grow, but they're not more important than what are you doing about the economy and the cost of living and inflation and rising interest rates and the prospect of a recession? And also, climate change is still coming at us. Are we doing enough? Do we need to do more? And I, I've been struck in the data in the piece that I wrote, and I hope people have a chance to read it, by the fact that this isn't really about people saying to the government, move to the right. It's actually people kind of in the center and the and the center right and the center left all saying we want a little bit more focus on the economy and everyday life we want a government that doesn't feel so kind of distant and living a different existence than us we want action on climate change and um, those are the keys for the liberals uh, to pull more of those voters uh, and create the circumstances where they could win again you know, what puzzles me still after having watched this process, you know, like you for many decades now, is that there is, you know, it, this repeats itself. <laughs> you know, and as you, as you said, it doesn't matter which party, it doesn't matter um, the size of their majority or minority. 
it just there seems to be this thing that kicks in every eight or ten years it's you know it always reminds me of that i don't know whether it was true or not but they said caesar when he was riding around rome in his chariot or whatever he was in always had a guy behind him who who would whisper in his ear or or yell in his ear because the crowds were you know big caesar fans caesar mania and um he'd whisper in his ear you're only human right trying to keep it realistic about what was happening and it seems to me that that's what what happens because you're quite right as you listed in that you know in those couple of sentences you know that they suddenly don't look like they're one of us anymore. They travel around in their chauffeur-driven limos and they, you know, smile and shake hands and this and that and the other thing. And it doesn't feel, it increasingly doesn't feel real. Looks at it at the beginning, because they're kind of like part of us. We put them there. It, it's impossible also not to look at this and say, if we didn't have the kind of polarization and if the internet didn't exist, would we feel, um, would we have these thoughts to the same degree? And every once in a while, I remind myself of what life was like, um, not that I was living then, before TV um, and politicians' form of communication was speeches typically covered by print journalism. And uh, occasionally there would be pictures and uh, sometimes there might be radio too, but you get the point, right? Back then there wasn't the ability to, um, to kind of see every moment of the life of a politician, including the moments when they're at their weakest or their worst, or they're, you know, they're making foibles. Um, so I think that's a, that's a factor, plus the polarization, so that politicians who are kind of caught up in the moment of representing their party or their ideas or reacting to things that they really disagree with and they want people to kind of be aware of can take to social media and do things which feel good in the moment but create more sense of distance. And I reference one in the column that I wrote, which is about this idea of if I saw something that you did, Peter, that I didn't like, and I said to you, Peter, do better, you know, you'd want to come through the screen and, and uh, punch me in the nose. You would be offended by that. Um, now, I'm not saying there aren't people doing things in society that don't make me really upset. There are. Um and I feel like I want them to do better. But my point is really when a politician, elected official, uses language that implies that they're in the position to judge everybody else, they're walking on thin ice. They're asking for trouble as opposed to take a breath, make an argument, make a point. Don't use language and terminology that implies you're a superior and others might be subordinate to you or that you're in a position to make moral judgments about everybody, even if you feel those moral judgments completely. And sometimes, obviously, people want to and it's legitimate to express a strongly held point of view in a very strong way. I'm just saying I think that 
social media and polarization are like fertilizer for this phenomena of politicians finding themselves saying and doing things that make it look as though they are removed and maybe feel superior uh, to everybody else. And they need to be really careful about that. You know, I think in our uh, interview with Anita Anand yesterday, she seemed to be heading in that direction because she was talking about empathy and that real leadership involves showing empathy, showing a, a respect for, you know, other opinions and trying to understand where people are coming from. Um, and I think, I think what she was saying by saying that is that there's been a lack of empathy on the part of, uh, of political leadership uh, at times across the board. And, uh, and, and politicians need to consider that uh, more than they have done in the past. Um, okay, we're going to take a quick break. I want to come back and talk about, talk about the media for a moment. Um, but that was a good discussion. Glad we did it. Back with Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth right here on The Bridge right after this. Welcome back. Peter Mansbridge here in uh, Toronto today. Bruce is in Ottawa. This is Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. A quick reminder of what's to come this week on our our first week back from our summer hiatus. Uh, tomorrow, it's kind of the Your Turn mailbag edition with a new twist coming in tomorrow. We'll see how that plays out. Uh, but it depends on your letters and, uh, and your uh, submissions to the mailbag. So if you have something to say about anything we've talked about here or about the interview with Anita Anon yesterday or anything at all, including the question of this week, which I've asked and there already been some interesting answers on this, is what did you learn about your country this summer? What was something you learned about Canada this summer? So uh, let me know. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. Friday, of course, is Good Talk. Chantelle Bear joins us from Montreal. And uh, along with Bruce, we'll uh, analyze any number of things. But I imagine what we'll be looking at most is the uh, conservative leadership vote, which will be announced on Saturday. All right, Bruce. Um, you know, a, a lot of focus in, especially the last few weeks in Canada, surrounding a, a move made in the in the Canadian media that caused a lot of controversy. I'm not going to uh, say anything more than I've said in the past uh, on that, because um, quite frankly, I'm still not convinced I know exactly what happened and why it happened. And the more people I talk to who are closely aligned with that story have a similar situation <laughs> they they're they're not sure exactly what happened um i've made my uh, feelings clear about the person in question uh, who's a uh, you know i've known for a long time have a lot of respect uh, for her journalism and i believe that uh, you can't keep somebody like that down and with any if she wants i am sure she's going to be back at the front lines of journalism in canada 
However, what I want to talk about and get your thoughts on, Bruce, as well, is this is not an isolated incident. When you look at the big picture of North American journalism, especially as it relates to television, there is change going on. And some of that change isn't just what's going on behind the scenes in the landscape of television journalism in North America because of a variety of different things, but also the face of journalism uh, as different networks and executives try to come to grips with a changing dynamic in terms of its audiences. And I think that any discussion about what's happening in the media has to include an understanding of that. And of late in the last, especially the last week or two, there have been quite a few things written, especially in the American media, uh, that get away from the personalities and deal more with the fundamental changes that are going on within the landscape and why they're going on and what's happening to the way we watch television especially. Mm-hmm. What um, what are you learning from all that? I think it's a really interesting time from the standpoint of, you know, people may or may not be paying enough attention to public affairs and news to be well-informed, to shape their democracies in the way that makes the most sense. On the balance of the evidence, I think we need people to pay more attention and I think one of the one of the important changes is that news organizations need to embrace the digital reality, need to stop over-investing in the platform that people are using less and less, television, linear television, and do more to reach people using digital techniques. I have no, I have absolutely no doubt that in the case of um uh, the journalist who um, who was let go from CTV News, that there is in the world um, discrimination against women as they age. I don't have any idea really whether or not that's what was responsible for this choice. I don't think we have enough information, as you put it. Um, it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't shock me, but it would dismay me if that was part of it. But I think that it's also reasonable, as you suggest, to take a step back and not only look at that and say, what is happening in the world of television news that's interesting, that implies that there's turmoil and that people who own these television news properties are struggling to figure out what to do with them, how to make money with them, how to keep them sustainable and profitable over time. And that's not easy at all. And partly it's not easy because um, you and I were sharing a read of a piece about Meet the Press. Um, which I found to be quite an interesting piece, and maybe we can find a way to post it so that uh, listeners can can read it as well. The um, the point of the piece was you've got this this kind of legacy program, Meet the Press, that's been around for decades. That has that was a marquee property in the world of news and public affairs, and that you and I probably watched r- religiously every Sunday morning. Um, now I don't know about you, but I haven't watched it in 20 years, 15 years. Um, But I know that people still feel an attachment to the idea of these programs. And that's true, whether it's kind of nightly news appointment TV at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock or these Sunday talk shows. But, you know, if I'm going to watch anything from those programs now, any of them, I'm more likely to watch 
um, short excerpts on YouTube. Um, why? Because it's an easy way for me to, uh, to grab the essence of a story because there's no commercials. And the research that I've done over the years shows me that people want the news when they want it, not to have to show up at an appointment hour set by somebody else. And they really love content with no commercials. So I'm watching the reinvention uh, of news with some optimism, some trepidation. The other thing that's in that story is it was the reference to CNN um, looking to reposition itself more towards the center as a news organization. And I found that interesting and I found myself thinking, well, that's a good idea, but how do you execute on that idea in a time when there's such shocking news from the Trumpists and the MAGA Republicans? And how do you, how do you navigate your way through a day like yesterday? And this would be a good question for you, Peter. So, you know, let's say you're in an organization that's saying we need to make a more deliberate effort to be on the center of the spectrum, to not look like we have a, a point of view that's more often than not um, on one side or against one side of the political operations that are out there. You know, yesterday, breaking news in the evening was that uh, some of the documents that Donald Trump had at Mar-a-Lago contained nuclear secrets about other countries. Uh, that's a pretty shocking piece of news. How do you report that in a way that feels as though you're not taking sides to an audience that thinks everything feels like taking sides right now. I don't know how to do that. So CNN's voyage towards some sort of centrism, I think, is going to be more challenging in the execution than in the idea. I agree what do you with think? That. I agree with that. And I, I think you have to keep peeling back the onion to understand why they're doing that. Um, they seem to be doing that uh, because of the age factor. They've determined apparently, through their their analysis and their research, that um, their audience has been fragmenting because younger viewers who may have that take on the world, um, this kind of left of center uh, take, um, are looking at other ways. They, they've gone digital as opposed to um, uh, the traditional way we've watched television since it came on the air. So, in other words, they're they're cord cutters. They're moving away from the various cable companies. They're just going to uh, streaming specialty services. They're getting their television the way, as you put it, the way they want it, not the way somebody else wants it uh, to give it to them. Uh, and and because of that, because they've lost audience, the the audience that remains is older and. CNN seems to have determined that the older audience wants right of center journalism. And that's why the Fox channel does so well. I mean, it kind of owns the news channel business in the States. Um, Not quite the same in Canada, not quite the same in the UK as we've discussed before, but that's what's happening in the States. And as a result of it, they're going through a degree of turmoil that's suddenly become evident only in the last couple of weeks. They're moving out, they're cutting, they're dropping, they're dismissing uh, people who they feel are pushing a left of center 
and and not not just left of center, but left left of center um, agenda on their programming, and they're replacing them with people who are more in the middle. Now that's caused turmoil, and that's caused resignations, and that's caused a lot of rumors about who may be next. And uh, you know, some of the same kind of stuff is going on at the uh, the other networks as well, but. Um, I think that is that is an element, the changing demographics of television news viewers uh, and the impact that has on the commercial operation of networks. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I think the um, I think it's probably also true that the people who are left uh, consuming TV news have maybe as a part and part as a function of having observed politics for a long period of time, they have very developed uh, and kind of deeply held views. And so they, they're looking for journalism that reinforces those views. Perhaps Um, I don't want to overstate that because I think that it's entirely um, possible that people, older people, people my age, for example, can have open minds about different things and want, uh, you know, a more balanced representation, but how to unpack those things so that kind of advertisers know who they're reaching and what products they should be trying to sell is at the heart of the issue that these TV executives are trying to start out. And that generally does kind of propel you to a, a place where it looks like you're selling to a people of a certain demographic with a certain worldview and that's different from the idea of establishing a news enterprise that is intended to serve everyone. I think that's the biggest change as I see it from the way TV was kind of conceived and developed, which was as a medium that would serve everyone uh, and therefore needed to be able to be embraced by everyone to now something that if it's going to make a buck is going to need to find uh, a version of the relationship between the My Pillow guy and the Fox News uh, TV viewer, and it's impossible not to know that and to think that these TV networks are going to end up either failing somewhat if they don't do that, or becoming more of a an echo chamber if they do go in that direction for the views of their audience. I don't think it's a I don't think it's healthy. I think we're headed towards a period of significant disruption, but it's going to be a it's going to be a ten or a fifteen year period. And in the meantime, we need to look for content that you know not only does what we sometimes want it to do, which is to kind of remind us of the things that we already agree with and reinforce the positions that we have and criticize the people that we like to see criticized, but opens our minds up to different arguments. And I think that's the art of journalism right now that hasn't yet found, or at least hasn't regularly and across multiple platforms found a business model, but it's what we need. Um, And we need less uh, polarizing content about issues that are already polarizing. We need uh, content and journalism that doesn't start out just with the agenda of making everybody agree on everything, but starts with the agenda of informing the conversation in a rational and a, and maybe a little bit more calm way sometimes i hate to have to do this but i've got to i got to make my second admission of the of the uh, 
program today. I'm already enjoying it. I don't know what it is. Oh, you'll love this one. And I know that I'll pay the price for this for days, weeks, months, years, probably uh, to come. I bought a pillow from my the my pillow guy. Wow. Wow. Now I thought I knew you. <laughs> this, this was probably 10 years ago. And I got sucked in by the ads thinking, wow, you know, like maybe I finally can get a pillow that works for me. Jesus. Do you yeah. walk into your shower too? <laughs> or your bathtub, I should say. The walk-in bathtub. <laughs> anyway, the pillow sucked. It was useless. It was like it didn't work, and I gave up on it uh, almost That's immediately. Hilarious. But I, uh, I have to admit, I, I bought from the My Pillow guy. Maybe you should auction it off on the website. Yeah, the Peter Mansbridge game used pillow from My Pillow guy. <laughs> it's long gone. It's in this, you know, the bottom of the Stratford dump uh, landfill. Um. <laughs> Here's my last point on this because we got to wrap this up. This has been great, a great uh, first uh, first show back for the season. Um, here's what bothers me about this: what we're going through here right now in different uh, media circles. Now, I, you know, I, I'm out of it now for the uh, the most part. It's been five years, more than five years, five and a half years since uh, since I anchored the the national, and everything's changed. Everything's changed about. The business on so many different levels but one thing we always used to pride ourselves in for the longest time through the 60s 70s 80s 90s started to disintegrate around the 90s but the big decisions were made on journalism by journalists or by those who'd come through journalism in the into the management level um that started to change in the 90s when the bean counters took control. And we saw the results of that. Some, you know, awful decisions made in the network I used to work for and in other networks. Um, and that seems to be what's going on now. And I, I worry about that. Uh, and I, I worry about what that's going to do to journalism. I, I Listen, I appreciate that the journalists aren't, you know, <laughs> in the heyday of... Uh, uh, of journalism, which was, I guess, sort of, and I'm not talking about the golden era. I'm sort of talking about the heyday when we traveled everywhere. We did all kinds of things. We we had large crews because that was the, 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 the state of the business at that time. But the last thing we ever talked about was money. You know, if we were going to go to, you know, Central America or Africa or, or the Middle East, the discussion was about the story, not about what it was going to cost us. Now it's the reverse, right? It's all about money. Um, and when those decisions trying to try to take hold, what's going to suffer is the quality of the journalism and the amount of the journalism and your understanding of the world around you. Uh, and so that's, you know, that worries me about uh, the, this time we're, we're, we're going through. Uh, and we are certainly going through a moment here in the in kind of the history, especially of television journalism. And uh, how we come out of it I'm, is not clear to me. Um, final word from you, Bruce, before we wrap it up for this week. Yeah, I hear you on that. I think that the, the, the inclination has to be now to find the ways to do great journalism 
that can be supported financially for the long term. And maybe one of the things that is an uncomfortable reality there is that, um, you know, and I don't know if you're, you're, when you were making that point, you were thinking about the, some of the choices that have kind of come to the fore in the conversation about Lisa Laflamme and CTV, but, you know, they happen in other networks as well, is that where does it make sense? What stories does it make sense to say, we need to send a crew halfway around the world in order to produce a, a kind of a two-minute segment uh, on a news program every night? Or are there other ways that you can invest those funds to create quality journalism? I think those are hard choices. But I do feel like um, media organizations have a job to do to say, what are the things that only we can add value to in terms of journalism? And what are the things that are going to be adequately covered in terms of the basic information that audiences are going to want? So you're not always trying to uh, use your resources to create something that's pretty similar to something else that's out there because the market won't reward all of those participants equally. I think that's a very hard choice. And I think part of it is, is about making sure that there are that the dollars that are spent on more expensive forms of journalism um, don't suck up all of the money that's available for less expensive, but equally important and interesting forms of journalism too. All right. We're going to leave it at that for this week. Smoke, mirrors, and the truth with Bruce Anderson in Ottawa and Peter Mansbridge in Toronto. Join us tomorrow. It'll be the kind of your turn mailbag edition with a new little twist that's going into that. Uh, so we don't want you to miss that. Friday, of course, good talk with Bruce and Chantal Hébert, who joins us from Montreal. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours.